Thanks for listening to the Q&A podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sundays, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. Uh, welcome to the Q&A podcast. Uh, my name is Matt Deason. I'm here once again with the great Matt Karsh. And we uh, have got some questions to answer. And uh, the questions that we have in front of us today, two questions, and they're both about the uh, the parables. You could call this a parabolic podcast. Oh my gosh, please. Did I tell you I watched Solo again? No, it's no. good. Well, it's, it's good. better than I gave it the first oh, time. Oh, so good. I, the first time I saw it, I rated it a 1 out of 10. Second time I saw it, I'm I'm ready to move it up to like a 2 and a that's half. A, that's that's over a 100% increase. The, yes. But I don't think I I don't think I'll I don't think I'll ever get over 3. But the ending is better than I the first time I was it's just, just a great movie. We should debate it on another podcast, yeah, but let's should. not get Oh yeah, we've got two uh we've got two questions today. Uh both of them are about the parables uh, that Jesus told. So, do you want to read the questions first, or do you want to talk about parables first? Maybe we'll read the questions and yeah, then... read the questions. We'll okay. So here, here are the questions. Uh, the first question is: uh, I had a question about the parable in Luke nineteen. Uh, who or what is the role of the master? Is he a good master or not? And we'll get into that parable and who the master is in a bit. Uh, the second question says, I thought the Bible said we were justified by faith and not by works. But in the parables of Matthew 25, it seems like people are locked out of the kingdom of God by making simple mistakes, forgetting, all, uh, forgetting oil for their lamps or not putting gold in the bank. Uh, at least in the parable of the sheep and the goats, they went to hell for not caring for the weak. But that still seems like a work. Uh, in the end times, will Jesus say he didn't know me if I didn't live good enough? So a couple questions about New Testament parables and how we interpret them. Well, and the nature of justification, just in slight bit. Totally, yeah. But the but they're wondering about justification because, because we read, of the parables. Yes, because we read Jesus' parables yeah. and they challenge what, yeah, sometimes what we think of. Okay, so yeah. I think we should start by talking about parables. parables. What is a parable? Okay. What is a parable? Yeah. Okay, so Jesus uh, taught in parables, which are the easiest way to understand it is they're like um, it's like a metaphor. They're metaphors. They're they're oftentimes hyperbolic. They're hyperbole. They're Jesus using images and stories and people and characters from everyday life in order to illustrate some some pretty profound truth in a very earthy, gritty kind of way. So Jesus uses stories about weddings and marriages and, and um, seeds and Farming and, and tenants exactly. and masters and servants. So God himself is teaching people about the nature of reality, and he uses these very normal ways to uh, speak. And... Sometimes it's, it was easy for me early on to understand parables that it's not just Jesus who speaks in parables. The classic example is after David is caught in adultery. Um, oh, I'm going to blink. Nathan. Nathan comes to him, and Nathan uses a parable to illustrate to David how how 
ridiculous how David's been. Yeah. been. yeah. So he said, "Who? What would you do?" And David goes, "Well, I would kill the man. How dare he do that?" And then Nathan goes, "You're the guy." Right. So it's this way to uh, to enlighten, or this way to see truth, but in a in a different way. It's right. not just didactic teaching. This is how the way the world works. Right. It's meant to be through this form of a story of a parable. Mm-hmm. And Jesus often speaks in parables, and he even tells his disciples the purpose of the parables. And so in Mark 4, um, you get the classic, the parable of the sower. You know, there's this person who's sowing seed. And then the disciples, uh, well, he ends that parable and says, let anyone with ears to hear, let them hear, let them listen. And then um, in verse 10 of Mark 4, uh, when he was alone, Jesus, uh, those who were around him along with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. For those outside, everything comes in parables in order that, and then he quotes from Isaiah, they may indeed look, but not perceive. They may indeed listen, but not understand so that they may not turn again and be forgiven, which sounds really counterintuitive at first and goes, well, why is Jesus speaking He's speaking in a why code. Would, why would he hide the truth right. in a code that that so then people won't people be able to understand? Grasp. Right, yeah. and and it's important. And we'll just gloss over it. But uh, the passage that he's referencing in Isaiah uh, really speaks to this idea that if you don't have ears to hear or eyes to see, which means if you you can look at something and not see it, uh, you can hear you can hear something and not listen to it. Um, we often, I oftentimes do that in interacting with people. I might hear their voice, but I'm not listening to what they're saying. Do you do that to me? Um, probably more so with my wife than I do with you. Oh, okay. Wow. Confession time. Confession, yeah. Wow. Um, wow, let's not get down that path. I'm just saying we do that all the time. Right, right, right. And so what Jesus is pointing out in his quotation of Isaiah is that people are going to hear me speak, but they're not going to understand it, not because it's... Not, not because, because, I'm, not because I'm trying to hide it. Hide it. Right. It's because their hearts have so disposed them to not be able to hear or see what's going on. Right. So for the 12 and for these other crowds of people who are, who are there and they're listening and they want to hear, Jesus invites them into deeper understanding. And those of us who now have been filled with the Spirit, we can go back and we can read. And there's we can get something out of it, this timeless truth based on a story that Jesus told in a really short, powerful kind of way that actually reveals truth to us that matters 2,000 years later. Right. Yeah. So I see the, the parables being actually a brilliant form of communication on multiple levels. One is that you can embody kingdom truth or truth about reality or truth about God in a story that's very easy to grasp, very easy to remember, very easy to pass on. Right. Yeah. So, so I think there's something brilliant about that, that these simple like peasants could be hearing something and accurately passing on information about how the kingdom of God works, right. which is something very deep and complex. And so there's something within the parables as a communication tool that are actually pretty brilliant. Uh, but one of the reasons they're brilliant is that Jesus could stand in front of a crowd of a thousand people who are all there to listen to him. They're all eager to hear what he has to say. And he could lay out these parables and 500 of them might have hearts to hear and be drawn into the kingdom. Right. And the other 500 have hardened hearts and they're like almost repelled. They're like going the other way of just like, I don't understand any of right. this. I'm out of here. And it's just, it's, there's something really profound about that. He was able to kind of lay it out in front of everyone. And if you had ears to hear and eyes to see, 
you would you saw and you were actually drawn into uh, the true nature of the kingdom of God uh, breaking into our reality. And yeah. so I think there's so many uh, we could say a lot about the parables, um, but they were for those with hardened hearts. It almost in my mind almost repelled them yes. and confused them. Those with soft hearts and a heart for God and a heart for the kingdom were actually drawn in and uh, and enlightened. And he also was taking very complex truth and making it uh, gr- very graspable and understandable yeah. to the everyday person. And so I think then in terms of answering this question, that this is key because the parables have, and there's a dynamic in which in order to understand the parable, you have to understand the, the time and culture and context. Like you don't get the, the parable of the prodigal son unless you understand first century Jewish culture. You understand that pigs are unclean. You have to understand that the dad running to go save his son, the slaughtering of the fat. There's all these dynamics to where in order to understand the prodigal son on its deepest level, you need to understand a lot of context. But you can, almost anyone can read just the story itself and get something totally. from it. Right. So it's, it, I think it's, it's confusing because we can, you can go back and you can read the same parable multiple times and really come to a deeper understanding of what Jesus is communicating right. because of, oh, now I have a better understanding of the context. Right, right. And But, like, I have, I have a three-year-old and a two-year-old. Right. And I can read them the parables and, like, they get it. Like right. They understand the truth that's there, and they don't have a clue about, like, first-century Israel right. or whatever. Uh, but they still get it. Uh, and yet, as an adult who loves the scriptures and loves reading about first century, you know, history or whatever, um, I still learn new things right. about the same parables that my two-year-old and three-year-old um, grasped on some level. Right. Yeah. And so I just in terms of where we're going to head with talking about this, I think there's there's like a there's like almost a, kind of a broad punch to the parables. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's even more nuances within them. Right. So so to get back to that point, we're, we're, when you open up the Bible and you read a parable, the first thing I'm looking for is the, the main point. Like, yeah. what's the point of the parable? Right. What's the thing that my two-year-old and my three-year-old are actually going to grasp about the kingdom or, of God? And, and I would even say, like, what, yeah, what does that original audience or, you know, the, that second wave of Christians when when... Mark and James and John are saying, hey, Jesus taught this. Right. When that second group of people are listening to them recount what Jesus said, what's the first thing that they right. get right, right. from? Uh, and so first you're figuring out what's the point of the parable? What's the main thing it's trying to illustrate? Right. Because if we miss that or we assume that it's something else, then we're off. And then after you get the main point, you're going to be filling in some of the nuances in point two and point three and point four. But you have to probably be a little more careful with those. Yeah. Um, and it's going to involve more history, more context. And sometimes we can assume points two, three, and four are something very different than than they were. Yeah. So we're, you're asking both of those questions. Yeah. What's the main point of the parable? And question number two, how much can I draw from this parable? Right. How I get the main point that it's teaching me about the kingdom of God, but how many subpoints right. is it also trying well, to teach? I, I don't know. I think of the classic example of um, the parable of the mustard seed, and in part because I have Mark 4 open, but um, uh, Jesus says the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. Mm-hmm. Well, in in our understanding of of seeds, like we know 
all of the seeds in the world. Okay, the mustard seed is not the smallest possible seed that exists. Literally, in the scientifically world. speaking, that there are smaller seeds than a mustard right. seed. Right. But when Jesus is communicating, he has a main point. You have a small thing, it grows into something massive. Right. Okay? The, the cultural nuances like, can maybe fill in some of the things around how in that culture the mustard seed was the smallest seed among, among all the seeds that they worked with. And so mm-hmm. it makes more sense that way. Right. But there's a main point there, which is something small can grow into something big. And that's Jesus' right. main point about right, right. how the, um, the kingdom, kingdom of God works, yeah. grows. Something small grows into something massive. Right. So seemingly insignificant. So right. there's a main point there that um, is that's the the main point is the key thing. Right, right, right. So we're not distracted with the fact that well, since the first century, we've discovered right. smaller seeds. So right. Jesus, no, we stick to the main point. But then I think we also have to be careful about what other points we're drawing out of it. Like, should how much should I hinge on the fact that it's a mustard seed? Right. You know, like what right. was the significance of mustard right. or whatever? Right. Uh, or Jesus, yeah. Or oh, Jesus says it's the smallest one, so we must have misunderstood the, our measurements. Or I don't know. Right. You can you can overread yeah. into the parables, and I, that's going to be important when we yes. get to these questions yeah. about are we sticking to the main point? How much can we draw out beyond that? Yeah. So, okay. Why don't we? Do you have any other thoughts before we dive into no, the, these concrete? Okay. So there's two. Well, there's a couple of parables that were asked about. I think we should start with uh, Luke 19. Really. Yeah, I think that's a good one. Because the justification by faith thing is going to be a longer conversation, I think. But, okay, so Luke 19, the question said, I have a question yeah, that's a good point. about the parable in Luke 19. Who slash what is the role of the master? Is he a good master or not? So, Do you want to read the whole thing? Or you could sum it up. Okay, so... So Luke 19, there's Jesus tells a parable. He tells a parable about a master, uh, a guy who owns land and has people working for him goes away and as he's going away he gives money minas um, which are about I don't know three three months worth of wages and he gives ten to one person he gives five to another he gives one to another and he entrusts varying amounts of money to his servants yes he's left his vineyard right yeah yeah so master entrusts his vineyard and entrusts his wealth to these people he goes away in order to be crowned king uh, you have this interesting comment that um, some of those. Oh, I'm gonna read it. Oh. Luke 19. Um, but his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, "We don't want this man to be our king." Uh, he was made king, however, and returned home. So he comes back to his vineyard after he's entrusted his money, and then he says, "Hey, you know what did you do? The one with ten? Well, he was faithful and made ten more." He says. Because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. So this master is now king, puts him in charge of more responsibility. Same thing with the guy who earned five more. You take charge of five cities. Then another servant comes and says, uh, Sir, here is your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. Master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you? that I am a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. And then it goes on. And what ends up happening at the end, uh, that, you know, that money goes to the guy who ended up making 10. So it's redistributed. And then the master uh, says, I tell you to everyone who has more will be given, but as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. 
But those enemies of mine who do not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Right. <laughs> so powerful ending. Totally, yeah. And Because the, there's other parables that talk about a master lending money and expecting a return right. on, on the investment. Right. Uh, but this one has kind of a darker ending than the others. And that it's yeah. not, I just lend you money and those who invest it well get more money. It's, hey, you know, not only am I going to take away from those who buried the money and didn't invest it and give it to those who know how to invest it, but bring all those enemies of mine who didn't want me to be king over them and, and kill them here. Well, and then it happens, it actually happens again in the next chapter. Um, there's tenants of a vineyard. The vineyard owner goes away. He sends back messengers. Those messengers end up getting beaten. You, yeah, yeah. Beaten we'll get to all. We get right. to all the the parallels because it's. I think it's really beautiful. And uh, but then in the end, um, the tenants of that vineyard they are killed, and then that vineyard is given to someone else. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole lot of meaning in those. Right. But so maybe we'll talk about the meaning first. Yeah. Because when you have a parable like the mustard seed. It's a pretty short parable, pretty clear meaning. It's yeah. kind of like neat and tidy. Yeah. Uh, when you have a parable like this one, I think some of these uh, vineyard parables are some of the most profound in terms of understanding, uh, especially in this context, like who is Israel? What have they been entrusted with? Who is Jesus? What has he come to claim? Um, and, and just understanding even the nature of this age that we live in. And I, I think it's really profound. And so the way that I would fill in the meaning of the parable is to say that Jesus is obviously the, the vineyard owner who has entrusted, entrusted Israel with something, but it's going to parallel with us. He's entrusted us with something. He's away being crowned, which is how I would kind of describe what's happening to Jesus right now in 2019 as we speak, like in between resurrection and return where is Jesus? Well, he's at the right hand of the Father. He's you know, been elevated to this place of kingship, but he's going to return as king and claim the entire cosmos as his kingdom. Um, and as bring, his vineyard. As, as his vineyard. There you go. Uh, and so he's away being crowned, but there's people who don't want Jesus to be king. That was true in first century Israel because they literally said that. They literally said to Jesus like, and to Pilate, you know, we don't want this man to be our king. Execute him, you know, crucify him. We don't want him to be our king. Uh, and so some of it is, it, some of the things in this parable, I mean, directly, he's almost telling the story of the Gospels and yeah. in a sense, like teaching us something about the nature of our reality uh, in a way that he doesn't in other parables. Uh, and so I do see it as, you know, Jesus has entrusted us with something. There are always going to be those who rage against his kingship, don't want him to be king, but he's away being crowned. And when he comes back, when Jesus returns, uh, then we stand before him and give an account for what we did with what was entrusted to us. Uh, and all of those who, uh, you know, fall in line with the hard hearted who wanted him crucified, who don't want him to be king. Um, are are going to face judgment as well. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else you would add to like what is the parable teaching us? No, I, yeah, I'd say the overall, you get this overall picture of kind of redemption in there's someone, there's God who entrusts the vineyard to the nation of Israel. They reject him. But, mm-hmm. but that story parallels the way that Jesus comes and he's rejected. <coughs> He'll come back uh, and there will be yeah, there will be reward for those who've been faithful, and there will be 
punishment for those who reject him. And the key thing, I mean, in terms of the question of is the master good or not, I've always struggled with this too, but um, you really just have to focus on the wording uh, because I come back and, and I read it. Well, the reason go, you question whether or not he's a good master is because of what happens at the end. The servant who is entrusted with one does not invest his one. And he says, the reason I didn't risk an invest is because, is yeah. because you are a hard man. You're a hard man. Yeah. And and it, I read it that way because it validated what I thought of as, like what I thought the father was like. Right. Well, he's hard. He's he's wanting to punish. He's a God of rules. He wants to right. punish people for doing where's, bad things. Where's the wrath of God exactly. come from? Well, it comes from God the Father. Exactly. He's real upset about stuff. So when you go back and read it, though, there's a couple words that, and and I'm not alone, and we're not alone in our reading of this. It's just when you just pick up your Bible on your own and read it, it's, it's easy to import your own understanding into it. So mm-hmm. um, hey, the, the sermon says, I was afraid of you because you are a harsh man. Uh, you you take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Uh, but when the, when the master comes back, uh, he says that... Uh, he says, I'll judge you by your own words, yes. right? And that's kind of the key, maybe, in I, your understanding. I lose my spot. Uh, but the, the, the question it raises is, is the master in the parable a good... Is he actually a harsh man? Or was that the just the mistaken assumption of one of the servants? See, I think it's the mistaken assumption of the servants. Right. The, the master says, I will judge you by your own words. You've said this, mm-hmm. and that's... that's that is a it's the people or it's the servant misunderstanding the character of the master. Right. Hey, I'm going to act this way because the character of the master is such and such a way. But right. even if he had done that, which which the master says, even if you did believe that, this is what you should have done. You still did right. wrong right. Right. either right. way. <laughs> but right. um, it's a misunderstanding of the character of the master. Mm-hmm. So it, to to bring that to draw that back to my life, the way I would describe it is. If I misunderstand the character of God, I'm actually far less likely to live the beautiful life that God is calling me to. Right. That is full of risk and uh, and following after Jesus. Uh, but if I misunderstand God's character, I'm actually far less likely to lead the life that he wants me to. Um, and in this parable, it kind of comes out with a sense of like irony of like, well, I... I totally misunderstood you. I thought you were really harsh. And he's like, if you thought I was harsh, then why did you bury the money? Right. Like it, you should like it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Right. And so there's like some added irony here. But I think the point for me is that when I read that parable, I don't see the master as being uh, as being harsh. To, to, I think he's a good master, but he's misunderstood by one of the servants um, who that servant is acting wrong, whether he's a harsh man or he's right. not a harsh man. He's right. done the wrong thing. Right. Uh, and and therefore he's going to kind of reap the reward. <coughs> and that and it doesn't the, actually the say that the he's end. it doesn't say that he's slaughtered. Right, right. The thing at the end is for these enemies of mine who do not want me to be king over them. Right. I mean, it's kind of insinuated that that guy is included. Well, but I I would push back on that a little bit. I think because there's other parables in which he does like the ten five one thing, and he takes what the what was from the one and the one kind of escapes it. Uh, and the one is still, he's like the least in the kingdom of heaven. Yes, yeah. Uh, and so in this parable, it doesn't really say, That's is true. he one of the enemies of God or not? But assuming, I, if I place him in the category of, hey, there's three Christians. They've each been entrusted with different things, right. different gifts, different amounts of money, different amounts of time on earth, 
Are they going to accurately see Jesus' character and invest, make the appropriate risk and invest their lives in the right way? Or are they going to assume false things about the character of God, live in a way that doesn't make any sense and doesn't require any risk, and then be the least in the kingdom of heaven yeah. is the way that I would describe it. Yeah, that's fair. It. But I think there's this separate strand of the enemies calling out, we don't want this man to be king. Right. And there is judgment for that. Right. So in the in the context of Jesus' teaching, I mean, the, the idea is, so to get back to the main point, the main point is God entrusts his work to people, and there's yes. faithful and unfaithful people. Be right. part of the faithful people. Right. I mean, that's the main point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and take risks. I mean, and we, if we understand God's character, if we actually understand his love for us, the security that we have in Christ, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the mission of God, I think the more accurately we see those things, the more moved we are to actually risk. Like if I understand the, on the days where I accurately see the character of Jesus and, and that he is the king away being crowned and that he's going to come back and I'm going to see him face to face, I want to risk everything. Sure. I don't want to hold anything back. I don't want to settle for something safe. I don't want to just live the American dream. I say, no, there's something more to take hold of. But it comes from my accurate, well, I can't, that sounds prideful. But from when I have an increasingly accurate view of Jesus, it actually makes me want to risk more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we should be stirring one another up to live uh, beautiful, compelling, risky lives that actually communicate communicate a message i even think about like bob goff's book love does Mm -hmm. and all of like the beautiful compelling stories there are in there well all of those things happen as a result of the love that that he accurately perceives in god it actually moves us into this life of of compelling action that speaks of the beauty of god yeah i'm ready to talk about matthew 24 yeah 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 let's keep going so this next we're 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 shifting now Um, we're shifting to the next question and it's still about the parables. It may touch on some of the stuff that we just mentioned, uh, but it's also going to touch on something a lot bigger. So question number two says this. It says, I thought the Bible said we were justified by faith and not by works. But in the parables of Matthew 25, it seems like people are locked out of the kingdom of God by making simple mistakes, uh, forgetting oil for the lamps and not putting gold in the bank. At least in the parable of the sheep and the goats, they went to hell for not caring for the weak. But that still seems like a work. In the end times, will Jesus say he didn't know me if I didn't live good enough? So, brilliant question. I, I love this question. I think it's really profound. And basically there, whoever texted this in, is wrestling with the fact that Hey, the scriptures seem to say we're justified by grace. We place our faith in Jesus. We receive his righteousness and salvation. Uh, we're not justified by works. And and yet, you then you start reading all these parables. Um, and uh, it seems like there's two classes of people in these parables. And some of them are being punished or even sent to hell for... Um, not feeding the hungry or clothing the naked or visiting those in prison or um, actually being ready uh, when uh, for the moment that Jesus returns or uh, not investing, putting gold in the bank falls in line with the, the last parable we Gosh, talked about. There's so much here. Uh, there's, there's so much here. But I think what, what the first question we have to answer is, is that an accurate reading of the parables? Who is who in the parables? Right. Who are the sheep in the parables? 
Who are the goats in the parables? Are they all Christians? And half the Christians are, are banished from the kingdom of God because they weren't righteous enough? Or like, what are we reading about? So that's why our front-loaded conversation about the parables right. was important. Because right. that's how you have to start. If the questions are what's raising, or if the parables are what what's raising this question about the nature of our salvation, we have to go back and read the parables and say, what are these parables talking about? Uh, and what's Jesus trying to communicate? What's the main point in the parable? So, yeah, where do you want to start? I, well, let's just start with the ten bridesmaids, the, the lamps. Okay. So, the just general overview of it. Um, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven will be like this. So there's ten bridesmaids. They have lamps, and they're waiting for the bridegroom, which is a classic Jesus uh, parable about how he's the bridegroom. The, the the fulfillment of the kingdom of God is like this wedding ceremony. So there's people waiting for the bridegroom to come back. Five of them are foolish. Five of them are wise. Uh, the foolish grab lamps, but they don't take oil with them. And when the bridegroom is delayed in coming back, and so the um, there's the shout, hey, the bridegroom's coming. The foolish ones are like, hey, give us some of your oil. And the, um, the wise ones are like, no, I'm not going to give you some of my oil. And then they don't, they're not prepared. Five of them, half of them are not prepared for the return of the bridegroom. Um, and then they try to, they try to come into the wedding banquet. The door is shut. Later, the, um, the other bridesmaids come, um, and say, uh, Lord, Lord, open open the door. Truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Keep awake, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Mm-hmm. Jesus directly ties the parable to his own return. Right. And so, so the question, you know. Jesus is going to return one day. Yes. Nobody knows the day or the hour. Right. So in three months, when somebody comes out on the internet claiming they know the day and the <laughs> hour, please don't listen to them. Yeah. But it's in a lot of his, like, I'm going to return passages it's about prepared about living in light yes. of his return yes do you live as if i'm actually going to return would you be prepared for that right yes. okay right and i think that if we're just going to talk about main points the main point is be prepared for it so there's two types of people those who are prepared and those who are unprepared obviously you want to be in the prepared group right that's the main point of it right um i think there's probably more we could say about it but if you're asking the question and i'll say i'll say this I'll say two things. One, if you're asking the question, it's probably a good sign that you're in the prepared group. Hey, like I want to make sure that I'm ready when Jesus returns. If you're asking these questions in order to be prepared for Jesus' return, well, my assumption is that your heart's probably in a place where you're prepared for that. My own life, an illustration from my own life. Mm -hmm. There have been times in my life where I have uh, lived in, in sin in unrepentant kind of ways, and I have literally thought, Dear Lord, I hope you don't return right now. I like mm. just don't not in the middle of this. Right. That would be a good example of me being unprepared or even mm. actively, you know, praying against Jesus's return to fulfill the promises of the kingdom, which is mm. probably not a good thing either. But that's like a really good example of if I can if I can consciously think, wow, I really hope Jesus doesn't come back right, right now. That's probably a bad thing. Totally. We as followers of Jesus, we should never be content living in this place where we hope Jesus doesn't come back. Right. And the scriptures actually end with someone full of the spirit saying, Jesus come quickly. Right. Like th- it would be the absolute best thing for this reality. If you come. Right. Okay. Well, how does that strike 
you, you know, as as a Christian, do do I actually want that? Um, or if you don't, it's really necessary to ask the question, why? Oh, why? That's the more important <laughs> question. If you just say, oh, well, there's so many people left to be saved, or right. I just, like, love, you know. Right. I, That's whatever. a different motivation than, well, I really want to get my own... I want to have my own way. I want to have my own selfishness. I want to have my own kingdom for longer. Right. I want to live in a way that's incongruent uh, and leaves me unprepared for right. Jesus' return. Um, the the other parable that they mentioned was not putting gold in the bank. We already kind of talked about that. Yeah, I mean, it's a similar parable to the other one. Basically, the master goes on a journey, uh, summons his slaves, gives them different types Amounts of money. Amounts of money. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it kind of comes back to, like, do you actually believe he's going to return? And and you have an accurate view of his character, yeah. Because if you do, right, because like, the same thing, master. I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. It's almost yeah. Forbidden. And and half of these things, uh, half of these parables are saying, wake up, like live as if this stuff is real. Jesus is going to return, and use your gifts. Like I, I we we get so weird about like the return of Jesus and end time mm-hmm. stuff. And I feel like when you read these parables, the point is like. If you you know if you really feel like Jesus is going to return, that's not a sign that you should be like stockpiling canned food in your basement or whatever. Like that's that's never the point of his parables. That parable never ends that way. You know, good and faithful servant, you stock four years worth of canned beans in your basement. Like good for you. You believe me? No, it's always about using your gifts. Saying, hey, what what are you doing with your time, talent, and resources to actually honor me? Are you risking those things uh, in order to to? advance my kingdom yes um so i think that's going to shine through again and again i do want to answer the question of the sheep and the goats right okay because this is a really good okay so the last one in matthew 25 essentially the son of man comes in his glory all the angels with him then he will sit on the throne of glory there's the promise from jesus that he's going to be the cosmic judge Mm -hmm. okay so for everyone who's if if you're looking for places in the gospels where jesus claims to be god here's a great example jesus saying the son of man is going to come he's going to sit on the cosmic Throne of judgment. There's just something that is reserved for God alone. Uh, All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So all humanity is in front of him. Yep. He's calling the faithful into the the ultimate and full kingdom of heaven and shutting out the rest. Yeah, he separates sheep from goats, which is a very normal image because that's what shepherds had to do because you're sheep and goats. They graze together. They would go through their day together, but then you would separate them. Mm-hmm. And so that's what Jesus does. That's the image he uses. And and the difference between the sheep and the goats, according to this parable, is really one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus says uh, to the sheep, once they're, once they're put on his right, uh, Come, you are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then they say, uh, uh, Lord, we when did we do that for you? We never, I didn't know that we did that. Um, and the king answers them, true, they tell you, just as you did it for one of the least of these who are uh, my brothers, um, you did it for me. And then the difference is the goats get, the claim is that they never did that, and they say, whoa, whoa, where were you? We didn't see you. When were you in prison that we didn't come visit you? And he says, well, whatever you didn't do for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did not do for me. So it seems to be... Well, and, and then the final phrase of the parable is, then they, the goats, will go away to eternal punishment, yeah. but the righteous to eternal life. Right. 
And I think that this is what gets at the question. Because the question is asking, are we justified by faith or are we justified by works? Right. And if we're purely justified by faith, then what the heck's going on in this parable? Why is he saying, hey, everybody who did social justice moved this way and everybody who didn't do social justice moved that way? And it, it does. he's not talking about faith faith is he like it it's it's i love this question i love it too for this so here's the but here's two things i'll just say on the outset Mm -hmm. one thank the lord that this is not the only passage of the bible (laughs) open the new testament this is what you get right like this this is this is seated within something much broader right right if that's all we have that's probably we'd go off of oh yeah and if you if we want to create this dichotomy dichotomy between faith and works read the book of james Yep. Because James has a lot to say about that not being a true dichotomy. Right, right, right. So just to frame it as simply as we can, because we don't have a ton of time left. Right. But the scriptures literally say, you are saved by faith well, and not by let's, works. Let's just read it. But then... The, 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 the most often place that we'd cite that comes in one statement, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Okay. The idea is not that you did enough good things in your life to make God like you. Right. That's not what. That's not the way the world works. Right. You you put your faith. Essentially, every human being puts their faith in something. Right. Only putting your faith in Jesus and His death and resurrection is going to bring you eternal life. So He's saying you place your faith in that, and that's what's going to do it. God's not going to like. God's just going to be sitting there counting sins and figuring out, well, it looks like you had three too many, like, sorry, right. or whatever. It's it's about it's about grace. Yeah, so it's we the have gift that. of God. Uh, but what, what I think, where, where I would, what I would drag into this conversation is then um, the, the, the statement that the scriptures also make that faith without works is dead. Right. And I think for me, that is how I would approach this. I would too. And so the, the thing is, James clearly says, if show me your faith by your works, the the reality and the, the the way that you could sum up James is if you really have faith, right? Then of course it's going to play itself out in the way that you treat other people, right? Or the, the the way that I would say it is if you have a saving faith, a faith that has actually saved you, then over time it will manifest itself in good works. Yeah, and and if someone claims I have a saving faith. And over time, it does not manifest itself in good works. It doesn't bear fruit. Then you go back and say, I'm not sure that you have a saving faith. Right. If you actually had a saving faith, then it would bear fruit. That's like saying like, oh, you know, I'm an apple tree or whatever. And you're like, well, I don't see any yeah, apples. apples. You know, I'll give it another season or two. But if you never produce an apple, I'm really going to start to question whether or not you're actually an apple tree. Right. Uh, and I think that's the the connection. Yes. And so you think of like the thief on the cross is a classic example yeah. for me of a of a person who was dying for their sin and has this moment of coming to faith in Jesus. As he's hanging on a cross next to Jesus dying, he places his faith in Jesus and Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Well, that dude clearly didn't do any good works. You know, this is like pure, like placing my faith in you. I believe that you're king. I believe you're the Messiah. I believe you're going to be this person on the throne, you know, all this stuff. Uh, and Jesus said, yep, you're going to be with me in paradise. Zero works there. He, he couldn't have, he didn't have time. You know, right. he, he died within hours um, and he couldn't move. There was no good works there. Uh, but 
the way I would describe it is, if the Romans had come to his rescue and pulled that thief down, I promise you he would have borne good fruit. Right. I promise you, given the time, he would have. And that's the connection to me. Yeah. Um, if the thief had said that on the, you know, whatever. We could get into all these different yeah. hypothetical scenarios. But I think for me, uh, it's there There are these, these warnings against people who maybe claim they have a saving faith or just kind of hang out. And, or they check and the, they, like, I don't know, you just check the, along, you check the box fishing your entire life. Right. And like, ah, I'm good. It's, I'm good because I've checked the box. For some people, it's a default assumption. They're right. just like, oh, whatever. Like, my parents were Christian. I guess I'm a Christian or whatever. Yeah. Um, and But the key statement for me is Jesus saying, I didn't know you. Yeah. Uh, he's not saying, hey, I gave you my righteousness, but then you sinned too many times. So now you're locked out of the kingdom. Like, right. that's just not at all what he's saying. But he is, but there is this life to be led. And if you have a saving faith, it will result in bearing good fruit. And and so here he's saying, like he does in other parables, you're not bearing fruit. Like the tree that doesn't bear fruit, I'm going to chop it down. I'm going to just gonna like toss it into the fire. It's, it's a useless thing. Uh, and to me, that's what a goat is. And so if you're texting in the question, you're not a goat. Probably not. Like, I, I'm... I, that's my that's my assumption. It's like if you're thinking about any of this stuff, I think it's the people who don't think about it. Right. Just and like when I made the, the comment at the time, the the asking the question and saying like, "Wow, like am I am I doing the things that Jesus called me to?" If you're asking that question, that that is part of the desired response of the parable. Not not am I going to go to hell or am I going to go to heaven because right. I haven't done enough? That's not the right question to be asking. Right, right, right. But am I doing the things that Jesus wants us to do? Oh yeah, and I think a lot of the parables are des- are designed for that. Right. They're supposed to be this kind of like shaking you awake a little bit and right. being like, oh my gosh, this life matters. What I'm doing actually matters. What I do from nine to five actually matters. What I do from five five p.m. to ten p.m. Whatever right. it is, like my life matters, and and my Am I actually being obedient to the king? Am I actually walking in this stuff? Not because I'm afraid that I'm somehow going to lose my salvation. Because he's the king. Because we belong to him. Because right. and, and there is, to be clear, I think this question and, that was texted in and similar questions are asking about the heaven-hell divide. Right. And I think that um, if, you, if you're following Jesus, like that we, sh- we shouldn't be like, have the sense that our feet are dangling over the fire or no. whatever of like, oh, I'm going to lose myself, like salvation or whatever. Like, but I would throw that question out. I would really push back hard against that one because of the nature of our salvation. But what Jesus does leave open, Jesus doesn't pull any punches about the fact that some people will be greater in the kingdom of heaven than others. And, and he just straight up says that. He talks about the least in the kingdom of heaven. Or even the in the, the, in the parable we started heaven. with, of like being a ruler over 10 cities, whatever the heck that like, right. might mean. In the, right, right, right. Being a, yeah, being a ruler over more. Hey, it's if, given you've been faithful in little, now you've been faithful Yeah, or Jesus much. saying, hey, I've, tr- I've trusted you with a little, now I'm going to trust you with a lot yeah. or whatever. And so there really is, I think the urgency, one of the, the senses of urgency in this life, and not the only one, uh, but one of them is the sense of like, no, I want all of it. I, I want, I want the fullness uh I think of it's Hebrews, I think, talking about all the people have sacrificed for their faith and saying there were those who were tortured yeah. and, re- 12, and yeah. refused to uh, give up their faith. They, they allowed themselves to be tortured so that they might attain a better resurrection. And, and I think we should have that sense, that fire, that sense of urgency of, no, this life really matters and it will affect my eternity. Not in terms of heaven and hell. When, when I was saved by Jesus, he determined that. 
if I have a saving faith in him that's going to result in these good works, then I don't have to, I don't have to worry about that. Um, I'm not asking the heaven hell question, but there still should be the sense of urgency in how we live um, and knowing that it's going to have a very real effect. And gee, that's why Jesus tells us that. He didn't have to tell us that. He literally didn't have to tell us there would be like greater and lesser people in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, why did he tell us that? Probably to wake us up so that we live in a certain way in this reality. If you live in light of Jesus' true character, if you live in light of the fact that Jesus will return and his reward will be with him, uh, that he's giving to us, I think that totally changes the way that we live. So I personally do not wake up in the morning and question whether or not I'm a sheep or a goat. No. I don't wake up and think like, oh my gosh, like so-and-so, oh, I just like missed that social justice opportunity. Like, oh my gosh, am I a goat now? Like that that's not the point for me. But I think like Jesus is talking to some people who are, are a lot of them are very calloused. A lot of them are very hard-hearted and they say, we're sons of Abraham. We don't have to do all that. We don't have to worry about all this stuff. Like, And Jesus is saying, actually, you've got to rethink this whole thing because mm-hmm. you don't know me. And I think that there would be groups of quote-unquote Christians that cultural Christians are people who think they're Christian or have checked that box and never really thought about it, who Jesus could say that to, who could shake, who could shake them up with a parable like this and say, do you have a saving faith? Um, are you a sheep or a goat? But I don't think that um, I don't think that's something that we should be worried yeah. about. Yeah. So, any other thoughts on that? We gotta we gotta tie this off. No. Okay. Well, hopefully we answered that question uh, well enough. If we didn't, uh, go ahead and shoot a, a follow up question or or whatnot. Um, I think we've got um, another episode or two in the making. Uh, question about um, women in leadership and in, in preaching and teaching roles that maybe we'll tackle next episode but we're kind of nearing uh, kind of nearing the end of, of our questions here unless people text in more so uh, we will end there and as always I will ask Karsh to end with a blessing mm, from the book of Romans May the God of hope fill us with joy and peace through believing in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Q&A podcast. If you have questions you'd like answered, text in your question to 208-503-3865.